1: Welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. I'm Joe Sullivan, your host and a co founder of the industrial marketing agency Gorilla 76, where we help B2B manufacturers grow through revenue focused marketing programs. Any business owner has his or her own unique vision for the trajectory of the company. There are lifestyle businesses, there are high growth businesses, and there are plenty of businesses that fall somewhere in between. But moving from a lifestyle business to a growth business in manufacturing requires a mindset shift. It also requires a set of very intentional transformations to accompany that new mindset. In this conversation, you'll hear from a manufacturing COO who's one year into his journey on this exact path. And he's here to break down five key transformations that he's leading his manufacturing organization through right now. Let me introduce him. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. It's good to be here. Appreciate it. Well, you bet. Well, Jason, I talked to a lot of manufacturing business leaders that come from all kinds of different backgrounds. Many of them are second or third generation leaders from family businesses. Others come from other manufacturing organizations before they arrive where they are. I know your background's a little bit different, and I think it would be cool to have you kind of tell us about your career experiences to date and how they've helped shape your perspective as COO at Diversified Metal Fabricators.
2: Yeah. So what's interesting about this transition for me is that I have no manufacturing background. And so I'm coming up on one year as the uh, COO of DMF. Really glad I made the choice. But you're right. I had a varied background. I actually started at a very young age as an entrepreneur. And so I have been in multiple different industries, but primarily in technology and primarily with small companies and startups and things like that. With a few exceptions, I was with Walmart after graduating from college and did uh, field ops with them and then some special projects at the home office. But very quickly bought my own business and then just reentered the entrepreneurial world. I had an economics degree, so I'm definitely a generalist in terms of, I don't necessarily try to stay in one lane, but it's obvious now to me after being in manufacturing for a year, what makes it unique. Elon Musk is not joking around when he says there's nothing harder than manufacturing. I can definitely attest to that.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. we kind of done a lot of that with our team at Gorilla too, is we've hired from all kinds of different backgrounds. We've had people come from inside manufacturing where our audience lives. We've had lots that have come from other marketing agencies or marketing roles in other places. And we've had others who are from completely outside of that, maybe came from customer service of some sort or even retail. And I think it's the collective... Diversity of experiences that kind of shapes the way you think about things as opposed to everybody coming in with the same perspective. So, always interesting to just kind of hear where someone started and what led them to where they are. We'll dig into other areas too. I mean, I can certainly
2: talk about how individual experiences have informed how I've approached this evolution at DMF for sure. And interestingly, technology seems to be a big leverage point for manufacturing in the future. As we confront labor shortages, as we confront material shortages, changing geopolitical situation, technology is going to give us a little bit of advance. The better you are at leveraging technology and manufacturing, the more likely you are to succeed and thrive.
1: Yeah, I mean, 100%. I I think my conversations on this podcast have made it very clear to me that there's just a lot of it's buzzwords right now, right? Industry 4.0 and AI and This is what's happening right now. It's the truth, and it's the way we look at how do you combat the labor shortage. Well, automation is going to be a big part of that. How do you kind of gain a competitive advantage when there's a lot of manual processes still happening on old school equipment? Well, it's bringing technology into the picture, and how do you attract a younger generation into manufacturing? That. Isn't interested in operating heavy machinery or working in old school factory environments, like, but they've taken computer science classes since they were little kids and they've grown up with iPhones in their pockets and everything. Like we need technology for a lot of different reasons right now.
2: Yeah. And playing video games and things like that. I mean, the workplace that these coming generations expect is not the workplace we're in right now. We're gonna have to adapt to that. We're gonna have to adapt to using fewer people. There's just going to be fewer available humans right to do work and so the ones that do want to do work or will want to do work and be the basis of a good company are going to be uh, looking for a different set of working conditions and challenges that we currently don't present to them today
1: to be honest i fully agree well jason you and i were talking recently about five specific business transformations that you identified as being critical to diversified metal fabricator success after stepping into your role there as COO. And when we were talking about it, I'm thinking this would be a great framework for a podcast episode to kind of break those down. And so I think that's where we're going to go with this today. I'd love to for you to maybe start by concisely naming what are those five, and then I'm going to have you after that go into each one in more depth.
2: Yeah. And I would say that There's fundamentally 22 areas of business concerns. I won't go into the whole list. There's five that are common in the core of those 22. Don't want to deep dive too much into that. But what's interesting is the majority of my career has been about either startups or turnarounds, including family businesses. This one was different in that it was not a turnaround. DMF is a very healthy business. It was very carefully managed over the last 50 years. The founder, Doug Davis, was a very astute, well, he was an engineer, turned out to be a very astute business person and shepherded the company mostly up until the last 20 years when his daughter, Danielle, took over and who is largely credited with the large increase in growth of the company. So Doug was the foundation and sort of got it going and built the substrate. And then Danielle took it and totally ran with it. And it's become the leading company in its segment in terms of market share ownership and reputation by far. And so this was not a turnaround situation as much as it was a transformation from a more family sort of lifestyle business into a growth business. The reason why I came on was that Doug and Danielle decided that they needed a succession strategy. I had known them for over a dozen years. Doug and I are both pilots. And we met in that world, in the world of aviation. And of course, that's sort of its own small little brotherhood, sisterhood. And so we kept in touch over several years. And I remember a dozen years ago, us talking about maybe me joining the company. But at the time, I was with Oracle and was doing an evolution there. It turns out we were right. It wasn't the right time to do it. But when the opportunity came up again, I jumped all over it. And I was with a great company when the opportunity came up. And it was a zero hesitation deal. The company is very healthy in terms of its financials and its reputation. But... A family business or a lifestyle type business runs a certain way. And not only that, it is decades in the making to get to that point. But inevitably, when you bring in someone new, you have two choices. Are we going to continue down this path of just a very steady business, still lifestyle and job shop and that sort of thing? Or is it our ambition to grow? With the full acknowledgement of both Doug and Danielle, They both agreed that the company had not only the potential to grow, but that that was the next evolution for the company. And that starts sort of the overall transformation, which is going to a growth-oriented business. I started, again, zero experience in manufacturing. I grew up in a mechanical family. I understand how things work and how to build and fix things and all that. So I figured rather ambitiously and erroneously, I would say, that I would pick it up really quickly. And that's not actually what happened. I still consider myself a manufacturing rookie. Thank goodness we've got an excellent workforce. We've got people at DMF that have been there for 37 years, which also is a challenge, right? And we'll get to that in a minute. So a good canvas to work with, but I am still learning about the complexities of manufacturing. And I think I will be for a long time. I think this will be one of those things where I'll be a student of this for a very long time. But As far as the business is concerned and growing the business, our market space is actually pretty small. The total addressable market that we live in is very small in the grand scheme of things. And so how do you grow that, right? You either have to make that total addressable market bigger by introducing more value in the product lineup and therefore a higher price point, which makes the market grow. also like, okay, well, how do you take a sidestep? right? And also go into something new. We happen to be in the railroad business. We make mobile equipment. We make what's called high rail gear. This is what you mount to service trucks and inspection trucks for the purpose of allowing those trucks to ride on the rails so they can get to these inspection and repair sites quickly. And so what you do is you take a truck, um, let's just call it a a Ford F-350 size truck or something like that. That would be a normal inspection truck. And you fit this rail gear to it. So it's a set of rail wheels that's jacked down by hydraulic cylinders. And it literally lowers a set of wheels onto the rails, just like a normal locomotive or something like that. And then you drive down the track. And this allows you to get where you need to go. Well, we're in a very small part of the railroad business. The question was, is what can we do in this business that allows us to leverage our manufacturing capability and our reputation? which we have a very good reputation for taking care of customers and and showing up and doing heroic things to help them get back on track. I mean, we'll do whatever it takes. And so it makes sense that when you have a reputation like that, to see if there's other opportunities in that industry to bring new products or replicate other products and services and just, just do a better job of it. That's the general growth strategy to start with, but it's going to require some changes to be made. And so that's where we identified five different transformations. The first one's leadership that has to do with, you have to calculate your ambition and your intentions of the future. You have to create a desired end state, right? Like what is this going to look like when we've reached our ambition? And then you kind of reverse engineer to it. And so that requires the right people on the bus as they like to say. And so the first transformation is getting the right leadership team together getting us all aligned and clear on what our mission is and what we're trying to do and where we want to end up and how we want to feel about it. And then building that really that core team and the tier two and tier three teams underneath them and get aligned on the goal. In our case, it's required new people. It's required people transitioning from one role to another. But across the five people on the leadership team right now, All of us are either new to the company, new to the industry, new to the job position, or new to each other. It's an all-new team, but it's an all-star team. So what we did was we went out to the industry and we found the best VP of sales we could possibly find. We took one person internally and promoted them to product development and so on and so forth. Given the direction we want to go with our products, we hired a senior VP of engineering who's got a lot of depth of experience in that. And we're not done making that transformation leadership. The other thing is to push down leadership and vision to every level of the business and make sure that we're all aligned all the way up the stack. And so that right there is not an overnight thing. You can assemble the best team in the world, but until that team starts to practice and play together, they're not going to a championship. We finally got through the formation phase of that. And we're now in the phase of practicing and
1: playing the game. Awesome. So that first transformation being leadership. What's the second one? The second one is brand.
2: And I use the word brand and some people are going to immediately think like logos and colors and websites. And that's not what I mean. Although we, we are doing that as well. That's kind of a standard part of my playbook. But the other thing we want to signal to the industry is that after 50 years, we are not resting. We're not taking a nap. We are doubling down. We are playing to win. And it's very different than playing not to lose. That involves a certain brand stance or a certain brand positioning. But it's way more than that. It's about the products that we offer the marketplace. It's about defining a customer experience that is unparalleled and amazing and extremely hard to achieve and then going after that. In fact, I think the secret sauce to anything like this is to define the ultimate customer experience and then engineer to that. And that's no secret. But really, that's ultimately where it's all going to work. Or what's going to make it work is to keep that in mind. You have to create that experience. And what we have done is we've created individual narratives, you know, actual narratives about every part of DMF, from leadership to how we want sales to work and all this sort of, but it's all from the customer perspective. So if we talk about how we want our factory to look. It's from the perspective of a customer coming for a visit. And so when I talk about brand, that's what I mean. Brand is your reputation, brand is your ethos, brand is your values and those types of things and everything that comes from that. So, you know, you could almost say that brand's more important than leadership. I don't think any of these are, I haven't ranked them in a particular way, but that's what brand is all about. And ultimately, it's how you, what value you're bringing to the market.
1: Yeah, I really like how you defined brand and broke it down there. I think a lot of people think of brand and they think the way we look, the colors and the logo and the tagline, which is a piece of it, right? But it's I like the way you described it as sort of stemming from customer experience that you need to deliver. Well, and if you know if you listen to this and you've
2: been running a manufacturing company way longer than I have, and you feel like you've stagnated, if the pandemic has caused you to trip and stumble, the way to get back on track is to define What is your desired end state? And the best way to craft that is from a customer's perspective. What is the customer's experience of using your business and your products, which are two different things. Using your business, relating to you as a company, and using your products are two different things. But if you don't have a clear narrative on that, it is an amazingly motivational exercise to sit down with your iPhone or a pad of paper and a a pen and a legal pad and write this out. It is extremely powerful. And it gives you a sense of like, okay, now I've got my direction back. And I'm not saying all of us are in that situation, but the pandemic was a real hard gut punch to a lot of small businesses. And I would imagine manufacturing was one of those that was very hard hit. We are still crafting that. I don't think we'll ever be finished. As a leadership team, we meet once a week to share our narratives and compare them. And I'm coaching the team through how to do that because nobody's really used to spending time on stuff like this.
1: Jason, we've talked about the first two of five business transformations, first being leadership, second being brand. What's number three?
2: Technology. This is a place I'm very comfortable, so don't let me rattle on too long about it. But technology is the substrate or the foundation for your success, a lot of times. Also, your business processes are, for sure. But technology is the force multiplier, and it happens to be a minefield for small businesses. Um, Small businesses cannot afford to make too many wrong choices around technology. And yet, they're confronted with a myriad of different solutions and software and moments in time where they're they're forced to confront these decisions. And so a lot of times we stumble as small businesses in that area. There's a lot of amateur providers out there. You gotta be really careful. And there's way too much software and there's there's just way too many choices. And those things tend to confuse and consume a lot of energy and time and resources to get right. And so one of the things that we had no choice about was to make a very, very abrupt transition in our ERP system. So I mentioned Doug Davis as the founder of the company. Unfortunately, three months into my tenure, Doug got ill and uh, has since passed away. He had created an absolutely brilliant software solution all by himself. He's done so over the last 35 years so that the system that we use today Is 35 years old. It's written in COBOL. It's still a Windows application, if you can believe that, but it's written in COBOL. And he wrote probably 95% of the code that it's based on. Okay. Now, the problem with that is obvious, right? The minute he's gone, we can't support that anymore. And as we all know, or as most of us know, ERP systems are very dynamic, very complex, and they all need a lot of care and feeding. Uh, maintenance, upkeep, patches, fixes, changes, things like that, when your source of that goes away, it puts you in a very precarious situation. So one of the things that, I mean, we actually identified and talked about this before I joined, but certainly when I joined, I made it clear that we probably need to transition to sort of an off-the-shelf solution. And it turns out that was forced on us way sooner than we thought. So technology transformation is important. So that's a replacement that we're doing with the ERP system. But the next thing is, what can we leverage? What's new that we can leverage? What is coming in the future that will be an even greater force multiplier? And it turns out it showed up big time in 2023, right? With ChatGPT. And all of this talk about artificial intelligence, right? Which a lot of this stuff has been around a long time. I mean, we were talking about neural networks in 1991, but we didn't have the horsepower, the computing power to realize a practical application for it. So all this time we've been researching and doing certain low-level things in the tech stack, but it wasn't until this year that it became consumer-facing. And everybody's kind of taken a step back and thought, you know, what does this mean? And what is this about? And is this the revolution that everybody says it's going to be? So I think it's fantastic. And I think, yes, it is. It's bigger than the internet, frankly. That's a big thing in our windshield right now. But overall, not to belabor the point about technology, we've had to transition a lot of that. Uh, One of the things that we've done on the shop floor is we implemented more shop floor instrumentation. So one of the big things that we did was we, and I learned this on your podcast about these guys at Datanomics, the company that writes the software that pulls your CNC machines. I have a shop with 12 giant Okuma CNC machines in it, and none of them were connected to each other, nor did we, were we getting any instrumentation off of them in terms of their efficiency, utilization, tack time of parts and things like that. So we implemented that right away. And then we're looking at the welding and fabrication cells to get more understanding about you know how good we are at making arcs and sparks as i like to say welding and grinding and so we needed to get better instrumentation from the floor so we could feed that into our operational dashboard which is more fictitious than it sounds right now we are one of the transformations we're doing is just is making sure we have operational information that is as real time as we can get it most erp systems don't have that and ours was no exception it had some features that were sort of dashboard type features, but getting real-time information about labor, getting real-time information about machine utilization, stuff like that, to be able to make decisions is is very, very much a transformation still for us.
1: You packed a lot in there. That was a really great overview.
2: <laughs> yeah, we could spend a lot of time on technology. It is definitely a minefield for small businesses because you just don't have a lot of margin for error. Large companies can You know, do a multi million dollar implementations of ERP and take three years and it fails and they start over and, you know, it hurts and people get fired, but everything moves on. If you make a mistake like that in a small business, you could sink it. There's not a lot of margin for error in technology decisions in small companies, especially manufacturing.
1: I think it's an area, a really intimidating area too, because the rate at which new technology is emerging. And I mean, you said it a few minutes ago, like, you got to be really careful, right? Because, and I think it's probably something that causes people to hesitate and not advance their technology stack fast enough is because it's probably really overwhelming.
2: Well, and manufacturing, I'm sure imparts its own pressure to build versus buy. So that's always the decision you confront when you're making a technology decision. Do I build this or do I buy it? In almost every situation, you should buy it. You shouldn't build it because there's so many solutions out there. It's likely that there's an 80% solution out there for you. And so I imagine in manufacturing, especially if you have a, somebody like Doug, right? I mean, he just wants to build everything. We literally build everything, our, our whole product in-house. We don't import sub-assemblies from overseas or anything. We build out a raw steel here. So it didn't surprise me at all that Doug decided to build his own ERP system. But most people shouldn't do that. Doug did a, an absolute brilliant job of it. But there's good reasons not to. And so... Um, there's a lot of pitfalls. I, we made the choice when we decided to look for an ERP system that we would rather fail, do a lot of small failures over a short period of time than one big failure over a long period of time. And so we actually went and did a proof of concept on an ERP system. We ended up deciding three months later, we're not using this. We start over, but that's better than waiting three years. So I could go on
1: and on about this. Not a good future topic to go deeper on. Yeah, for sure. Okay, let's take a quick break here. I want to let a couple of our strategists at Gorilla 76 tell you about something pretty cool that we're doing right now for marketing folks in the manufacturing sector. Peyton and Brendan, take it away.
3: So I'm Peyton Warren.
1: And I'm Brendan Forrest.
3: Twice a month, we host a live event called Industrial Marketing Live.
1: Right now, we have a group of 50 plus industrial marketers from a variety of manufacturing organizations that meet up digitally to learn, ask questions, network, and get smarter.
3: Every session has a designated topic. And one of our team members at Gorilla76 opens up by teaching for the first half hour or so. Topics have included how to do a better manufacturing webinar, getting started with paid social on LinkedIn, how to optimize your website for conversions, creating amazing video content, and so much more.
1: After we break it down, we open it up to Q&A so we can help you apply all of this in your own businesses.
3: This is pure value, no cost, no strings attached, no product or service pitches, just a 100% unadulterated learning experience.
1: And on top of these live sessions, we've also opened up a Slack channel where attendees bounce ideas off each other and learn together between sessions.
3: We're building a true community of manufacturing marketing professionals here. So if you or someone at your company has the word marketing in his or her job title, please consider telling them about it. They can visit industrialmarketinglive.com to register.
1: We'd love to see you there. Jason, we're talking about five business transformations, leadership, brand, technology, the first three we covered. Tell me what number four is.
2: So that one's the business itself. So I would call business operations is what I would say. A huge
1: challenge of small
2: businesses is they have a lot of single points of failure. They're everywhere in the organization. They have one payroll person, one HR person that's probably the payroll person. They may have one person that's HR, payroll, and AP. And so what you end up with, this is true of IT functions as well. You got one person that knows how the entire thing works. And if they go on vacation or they step in front of a bus, God forbid, you're entirely hosed. And so my philosophy on business operations is to outsource everything you possibly can. And you just bite the bullet on the pain points of doing that. So one of the first things we did was we outsourced the IT function. The people in the business are way more valuable at applying technology to that business's unique needs than they are fixing routers and printers and troubleshooting why my mouse doesn't work, right? And doing patches and fixes. That's insane. It just doesn't make any sense to me. So we immediately outsourced that. I mean, within the first month. It didn't make my IT department very happy. It turned out well. And by the way, that's not an easy thing to do. But what it does is it removes that distraction. Same thing for APAR, payroll, the whole thing. So the next thing we did was we outsourced payroll to Trinet. And this is all stuff I've done before. So I didn't pick Trinet out of a hat. They're frankly amazing. and Payroll is such a critical function that that can't break. And so that's the next thing we did. So we're on a path in the back office to outsource clerical, repetitive stuff that doesn't add value to the customer. The customer doesn't get value by us having in-house IT people that know how to fix a router. Okay, They get value by our people being focused on that customer experience narrative. They can't do that if they're worried about all this little gotsy stuff around running computers. Same thing for data entry for AP or AR or anything like that. We have moved all of that offshore from ContinuServe, a company I've worked with for 22 years, and so, yeah, the business transformation is basically a back office transformation to take anything that we're not uniquely qualified to do and move it to somebody else who's probably more uniquely qualified to do it and much more scalable and fault tolerant. So, my AP team now is three people, not one person. And that's because I'm fractionally sharing that team with other companies, but that's okay. It's a repetitive, well worn task. And these guys do a phenomenal job at it. In fact, you could look at that as your fourth shift, almost, because a lot of the stuff they do is overnight. Let's say we ship product. We don't invoice until we ship, right? That's manufacturing. So let's say we ship a bunch of stuff off the dock at 6 p.m. And we want customer invoices to go out as soon as possible. Well, it makes sense that all that data entry happens overnight. So when the my on-site people come into the office the next morning, the invoices are ready to just eyeball them, do a quick inspection, and send them out. Whereas what used to happen is they would come in the next morning and enter all the invoices and maybe get them out by the end of the day. But more likely than not, they get backed up weeks, like weeks and sometimes months. So vendor invoices were backed up several months. And so what was happening is they were paying the bills because you don't want to be late. But then all the other stuff was getting you know backfilled. And so the back office transformation, the business transformation is to streamline and automate and outsource as much as possible.
1: I love that. There are a couple sub points there that you hit on that really rang true for me. The first piece of it is the sort of mitigating the risk around tribal knowledge that somebody goes away and all the knowledge is tied up within them. Like, I mean, my company, our our agency, we've really, for industry standards and marketing, we have very good retention, but people are going to come and go. It's going to happen like in that environment. And the more you can sort of mitigate that risk. And we've worked with the same accounting firm for 17 years. And we've had, I think, four different accountants there. The current one's probably for the last eight or nine. and But the reality is there's been a seamless transition from one to the next because there's management above that person. It's their responsibility to make sure that their company continues to serve us well. So I think that is one big point. And the other one, which this isn't meant to be a shameless plug for my marketing agency, but the reality is you're buying... Fractional parts of, of skill sets, I suppose, where you hire an internal. We'll use marketing as an example, just because I can speak to it. But you hire an in, one internal marketer. Never once seen one internal marketer that has the skill sets of deep marketing strategy, copywriting, and journalism, videography, web development, design, like all the pieces that go into that. And you could probably say that in IT, you could say it in elements of finance. Right. And so I I think that's another really smart piece of it. Sometimes you don't even have to buy a full person's time, but you're going to get all these skill sets along with it. So I think it's really smart. And there's some frictional loss. You're going to have a situation where you're pushing something
2: out to a provider. That's not going to be a plus service at first. It is a process. You're going to spend two to three years. I mean, in the short term, you're going to get 80% of what you want. But to get that, exact thing you want. It takes a couple of years of working with them and showing commitment, right? How many clients do you have that start with your firm that want to quit after three months, they don't see any results. You have to stay in there with it. It's like training up an employee, but you have to ask yourself, like, do we want excellence in this area? We actually have a narrative for the back office and it involves what would Warren Buffett expect to see? What would he be impressed by if he came and looked at our operations? So what? that's the standard? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now it's hard to hit, right? But we know what we're trying to get to. And so one person or, you know, doing three jobs is not going to produce that outcome. It's going to take more than that. So, yeah. And ultimately what we want to do is we want to streamline it and automate it to where we're not concentrating on that. What we're concentrating on is the customer narrative that we're trying to achieve and the outcome we're trying to achieve with our products, delivering those to customers and adding value to their lives. Well said. Back office is a huge distraction to most companies. And most operators, most owners spend way too much time messing around with technology and back office. That was a little harsh, but I think it's true.
1: Well, Jason, we've hit on four business transformations, leadership, brand, technology, and business operations. What's number five? Number five is production.
2: I mean, we are in the manufacturing business. Obviously, the narrative for that is to deliver high value, which is made up of three components. Right, importance, utility, and worth to the customer in a way that is compatible with the way they do business with an experience that makes them want to repeat it or refer it to someone else. And a job shop is the way that DMF started. That's the way a lot of small manufacturing companies start, I think. And some of them still are. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being a job shop. In fact, part of me wants to double down on some of that just to, for extra revenue, right? but what i was concerned about is the tribal knowledge so i talked before about the tenure of some of our employees we have some of the most amazing employees the majority of our employees have been with us more than 10 years and several of them have been with us for 35 37 years 25 years you know that comes with its own inertia and the problem with that is that it's all tribal knowledge how we do certain things is very is is locked in someone's head and as a result, the choreography that results from that is beautiful because they've practiced it together for so long. The problem is you pull one of them out, two of them out, and the choreography of everything breaks down. You wouldn't believe how many forklifts we have moving around our place. We build heavy things. And so we move everything with a forklift. And I am amazed all the time. I don't want to curse us or anything. I don't, I'm not superstitious, but like, it's surprising how few incidents we have with forklifts. That's because it's a ballet down there. Right, I guarantee you if I brought in a fresh bunch of folks and they hadn't worked together before, we'd be having forklift accidents every day. That's just one example. In the way we build things, and the way we assemble things, and move inventory and stuff like that, we have got to standardize that. So the last transformation is a transformation of our production system, which starts with raw material, inventory management, materials movement, and goes all the way through the fabrication process. Because remember, we take a raw stick of metal, or a plate, or something like that, and we turn it into a machine that's hydraulically powered and mounts to a vehicle and carries thousands of pounds of weight down rails. So in order to do that, it's a choreography of its own. And so I decided, and there's always best practices out there you can follow. And the more I dug, the more I kept coming across the Toyota production system and the principles of lean management. Now, I wasn't hot on just-in-time inventory. I'm still not especially after what we've gone through in the pandemic. But I am very dialed into this whole lean management thing and the whole concept of eliminating waste and eliminating things that don't add directly to customer value. It's just a framework that makes sense to me. I wish I'd invented it, but Toyota did. And a lot of the world uses it. General Motors and you know companies like that have literally cooperatively built production plants with Toyota to learn how to do this stuff and it scales down really well. The principles are very simple. And so for us, it's moving from this operating modality of a job shop, or, hey, we all know how to do this, so we're just going to keep doing it, and into something that's more formal and is focused on eliminating waste, the eight different types of waste that they define in that process, and adopting a new way of manufacturing that is far more easy to replicate and scale. And so if you have growth plans... This is important. If you're not interested in growing, it's probably okay. You're probably going to be fine, even if you adopt 30% of that. But for us, we're space constrained. You know, we've got this factory we've been in for 40 plus years. They're building multi 1000000000 dollar houses all around it. So I can't grow, I can't buy the lot next door. And so we have got to get lean. We have got to get really, really efficient if we're going to be able to meet our growth plans. And so that's what that last transformation is about. This kind of connects to the initial strategy of building up a leadership team. The leadership team we're forming, most of them are TPS informed, but several of them have been studying and implementing Toyota production system for over 20 years. We do have a consultant from Toyota as well, but a consultant's never going to come in and be able to make the kind of change that a coordinated, aligned leadership team is going to be able to make. So we hired those people because everything I know about the Toyota production system, I've just read in a book. That's all. I can't translate that into value for the company. I, we had to bring in people that knew what they were doing. So that's number five.
1: It's amazing how many times TPS has come up in, you know, just tangentially in some way throughout these conversations I have on this show. It's the reason for it,
2: right? Oh, well, you can use lean management in your life, continuous improvement in your life, just making improvements. There's a guy named Paul Akers has incredible videos. He owns a company called FastCap. Anybody who hasn't heard of FastCap or watched Paul's videos, I think it's Paul, on YouTube, you're missing out. It has transformed the way I live outside of work even. You know, this concept of making small improvements in 5S and 3S and all these different things. It's just it's transformative for your life if you're not practicing it. So anyway, little asterisk there.
1: I'm going to check that out.
2: <laughs> oh, he's got some great videos. He's one of these high energy guys that you just, you know, you can get him on your podcast. Yeah. You'd love him. Sounds great. Yeah.
1: Well, Jason, great conversation here. This was really fun to break down these five transformations. Yeah, I learned something I'm sure our audience did too. So appreciate you, you doing this today. And we'd love for you to tell our audience how they can get in touch with you where they can learn more about DMF as well. Well, yeah, I have a LinkedIn page.
2: I'm not big on social media, so you're not going to see me doing much. I do a little bit on Twitter at Jason Pace, one word. They're free to contact me at jpace at dmfatlanta.com. I'm a perpetual student. I'm sure that I could learn a lot from everybody. I've certainly learned a lot from your podcast, Joe. I appreciate you doing this. What you've done and what you've contributed, I'm sure, is far more than you realize. Literally, my first day of work, I listened to your podcast in the car on the way to work, hoping that I could pick something up that would just make me sound somewhat smart, you know, because I was so, I was so worried about my first day and my first week and all this. So I was just, binging episodes of this and, and there's a couple more that are really good too. So thank you for what you've done. I'm sure there's literally thousands and thousands of people who have benefited by listening to your episodes. So anyway, I appreciate you having me on. It's been a pleasure. It's been a full circle moment to some degree, I guess, because I'm going on a year. It'll be a year next month.
1: Well, that's awesome. Well, first of all, thanks for saying all that. That made my day. Honestly, it's really cool to to hear that. And there's a, it's interesting always to hear, you know, often months, even after I meet somebody, maybe that's how they discovered me in the first place or our company. And so it's cool. The podcasting medium is, I'm such an advocate for it because I just, I have so many conversations with people that I otherwise would never have talked to. I've learned so much. I say this all the time on this. It's the best market research I could possibly do with my audience. <laughs> I'm just asking questions and learning from experts and people who have unique experiences and learning what matters to the people that I need to talk to. So it's pretty cool.
2: Well, you know, when you're young, you think you know everything. And one of the best things about getting older for me is realizing that I don't have to. I don't have anything to prove. I can be a student. I can ask questions. I can be dumb about something and depend on other people. The value of this medium and people who are dedicated to it like yourself. Is that if you're in that state of mind, then you can absorb a lot and learn a lot. And then what happens is it starts to ricochet around. And maybe you're going to, you know, somebody that listens to you is going to add value to somebody else. And, you know, I love the fact that we're repatriating manufacturing to the US. The manufacturing is such an honorable thing to do, it's so much more satisfying than software was ever for me. And it's just seeing stuff go out the door and you can smell it and touch it. And it yeah, uh, You know, like I smell my shirts and it's hydraulic fluid. And I'm like, that's America. And it's the backbone. It's, it, I think the challenges we face are certainly surmountable. I think we've got to make it appealing for a new generation of people to come do it. I wish I had done it much sooner, seriously. Or I wish I had actually started out doing this because I've been able to leverage everything I've ever learned in this business. And it is, it's a challenge. It's not for the faint of heart. And I have been faint of heart on certain days before.
1: (laughs) So anyway, yeah, it's been fun, Joe. Awesome. Well, congrats on making it through the first year and in the role. And I'm sure you have many, many more ahead here. It's fun to watch what you guys are doing from our perspective too. So yeah, Lord willing, we'll see. (laughs) Well, thanks for doing this, Jason. Great conversation. All right. Thanks, Joe. As for the rest of you, I hope to catch you on the next episode of the Manufacturing Executive.